Hello and welcome to the Mindfulness for Learning podcast. Have you seen the new government campaign regarding school attendance? If not, then take a look. Many have named it the Parent Blaming Campaign, a child happy and smiling with a variety of slogans, one of which states, this morning he was worried about school, but look at him now. With the government refusing to look beyond sticking plasters, this week I spoke to three parents about their child's school experiences. This episode speaks for itself. If your family are experiencing emotional-based school avoidance, then please tread carefully with this episode as it may be a difficult listen. We talk about anxiety, the physical restraining of children, self-harm and suicidal thoughts. I'm really thankful to these three parents for sharing their stories and being vulnerable so that others can feel less alone and so that we can continue to fight for change. So here they are, Amy, Sarah and Lucy. Welcome. A huge welcome to all of you. All of you have and still are experiencing prolonged traumatic events and I want to thank you sincerely for joining me to share your experiences today. It takes a special kind of vulnerability to really kind of come out and speak. Um, I'm just going to quickly summarise for our listeners where you are all at. We have Lucy here who is in South London and who has Jamie who is six years old and embarking on a six month at home with him unable to attend school due to uh, autistic burnout as as Lucy described it basically being in a mainstream school without the correct support and provision and training. Um, Jamie has been diagnosed ASD and combined ADHD um, and has a demand avoidant profile. We have Sarah who is in Bristol, uh, who has 11-year-old Isla, who's been unable to attend school for seven months. Isla is autistic with a PDA profile, which stands for Pathological Demand Avoidance or Pervasive Drive for Autonomy. She also has extreme anxiety, sensory processing disorder and awaiting an ADHD assessment. During the second part of her primary school years, she hit burnout and developed extreme anxiety and a fear of school. She now has a great independent specialist school that caters to students who have ongoing complex social, emotional and mental health challenges. However, due to the distance, which is 20 miles from her home and a lack of local options, she's not been able to attend this school since starting in September 2023. Isla is now at home recovering while Sarah, you fight to to secure the, the, the right education provision for her. And last but not least, we have Amy, who is in Oxfordshire with her son, 11-year-old Jack, who has been out of school since last summer, but has had a huge day today and started at a specialist school um, after a very, very long battle. Jack has been unable to attend school due to many complex and neurodivergent needs. So much to unpack there. Um, And I... You know, I I want to just get straight in and I want to start by each of you sharing an experience in your journey that up until now that has stuck out for you. It could be a moment of despair or exhilaration or somewhere in the middle, but just something that stands out. Sarah, let's start with you. Yeah, so um, for me, unfortunately, this is a moment of despair um, with our... uh, So in around... 2022 was in year five so she was around age nine um i was finding myself being called out to school quite frequently to help um help her to come through dysregulations um and one particular time i was called in um and i walked in to find my nine-year-old child being restrained by three members of staff um and screaming um she was really really distressed um and the reason for this was because she was trying to abscond from school she was in fight flight um, and she was really struggling. Um, and from that moment, I decided to sort of remove her from school for a period of 
four weeks to try and help her to sort of recover from that as it was a very traumatic experience for her which she's still struggling with even now um, so that was my particular memory thank you sarah and amy um so, yeah following on from sarah again it's it's quite a traumatic i think the real catalyst for me i have to try and say this as well about getting emotional because every time i think about it it does make me get really emotional yeah. um so jack has been on a, a a very long journey of six years of you know mainstream primary schools never been easy for him and you know he's had a an EHCP in place since reception year but people think it's a golden ticket and it's not unless it's being implemented and that's the constant battle that parents then have um the catalyst for me and I think something as a mum that will never leave me it will go to the grave with me um I uh, ended up putting Jack out of school in September. Um, he had a mental health breakdown. Um, when I say he was broken, he was broken um, to the point that three weeks later he was hospitalised with severe body tics. Um, and we couldn't bring these tics under control. Um, they were paralysing him, they were coming every minute. At the, it was horrendous. Um, when we were in the hospital, um, the consult, you know, they'd run all these blood tests, everything to make sure there was no infections, everything was coming back clear. And the consultant said to him, Jack, are you able to tell us what's going on in your mind when these ticks are happening? And what he said, absolutely, um, it brought me to my knees and still now it just makes me get really emotional because mm. he said that when they were happening, he was getting flashbacks of school and I'm not saying just current, it went right back to reception. He was pulling off six years worth of memories. And the consultant said that although he has a Tourette's diagnosis, that these acute tics were PTSD triggered. And he said, it's like when a soldier is at war, they're in constant fight and flight mode. It's not until they come back into a safe zone home that the post-traumatic stress kicks in and the body reacts and he said this is basically what's happened because you've taken Jack out of the war zone his body is now having time to process it's no longer in fight or flight mode and it's reacting to the trauma and to see him that ill in hospital mm. makes me realize just how because Jack's a people pleaser as well so he will try and contain a mask and tell people he's fine but obviously there is only so much the human body can take and mind and he broke yeah. and yeah and I promised him in that moment that he would never ever step foot back into a wrong environment ever again and it will never leave me never I, I can imagine well I, I can see why that would never leave you that's um yeah extremely uh emotive and horrible for anyone to go through um we'll pick on pick up sorry on a few things that you've said there in a minute thank you so much for sharing and um Lucy um it's just absolutely heartbreaking to hear these stories. Um, unfortunately, my moment is um, also one of despair. Um, but the moment that sprang to mind, I mean, um, Jamie had been struggling since day one of nursery or preschool. So um, this was in reception. He's now six, but he was five at the time. Um, he was trying everything to get out of school but by all accounts, it was the best place for him and we should be getting him into school. Um, he was also fine in school, so unfortunately we were forcing him in. Um, 
But my moment was we'd managed to get out of the door, which was a big struggle um, to get there. Obviously, we've been through a lot of steps to get there, a lot of uh, meltdowns, distress, crying, undressing. Um, he ran into the road. He ran into the traffic. Um, and luckily, he wasn't hurt, but um, he was distressed at the time. And he said, I want to break a bone. I want to run into the traffic to break a bone because then I know I won't have to go to school. Wow. Um, and again, it's it's really hard to talk about. Um, but um, this did happen on more than one occasion. But the first time it happened um, really hit home to me how much this five-year-old was scared and distressed at the thought of school. Thank you, Lucy. Um, what's what's coming across the the image that I'm getting in my head from from those three stories that you've just told? It, all I can see is this campaign, this attendance campaign, from the Department for Education, with smiling children um, and saying, you know, he, you know, this morning he had a runny nose, and look at him now. Um, and then hearing your stories, it's laughable, isn't it? Um, Amy, would you like to answer that? Oh, my God, I was told for six years, Jack's fine. Jack's fine when he's, he's fine when you've left, even to the point that they, they last year, asked, they actually questioned, the school questioned his medical diagnoses and said that maybe he's just got attachment issues. And if you look up the attachment theory, that's actually um, basically instigating that he had been through childhood trauma. So instead that actually um, I'd messed him up, not the school system. Mm. Um, and you know, my response to that was, well, one, you're not going to question diagnosis given by medical professionals, but also he's fine going anywhere else without me. It's just school that's the issue. Um, and it's a real insult when they say to you, oh, he doesn't do that here, he's fine. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're masking. It's called the Coke bottle effect. So all day that Coke bottles just shake, shake, shake. And they come home and it just explodes because home is their safe place. Yeah, and I just want to pick up on that as a, as a teacher myself. The, you know, I've, I spoke at the Rethinking Education Conference this year about mental health and wellbeing in the early years specifically. But one of the things that I talked about was this idea that it is acceptable for us to say to parents, oh, when they say, oh, they're really, really, um, you know, uh, upset or they've got a lot of energy when they get home and they can't really like focus. And we think it's acceptable to say, oh, yeah, that happens because they're kind of holding it together all day and then they go home and let loose. It's just the way it is. That level of acceptance, it's not OK, is it? No, absolutely not. It's not, and it, I think there just needs to be a wider, educated system that just understands the complexity of neurodivergence because they don't, and there's a real lack of training um, amongst mainstream schools to really recognise masking, um, to be able to say actually, like Jack would be very subtle with body language. You know, he would pick his fingers, pick his lips, he would stim a lot, very subtly stim. Um, 
he would speak very fast. Um, you know, he's a people please, but anybody who would be educated would look and think, actually, I think he's having a tough time. Let's go and have a walk. Mm. But actually, when he used to try and talk about his feelings, he was shut down and go, oh, no, but you're fine. You're, you're, you're doing OK. Um, and and that, that narrative and that perspective has really got to change. Yeah. Um, Sarah, is there anything you wanted to say about the campaign? Yeah, so I reiterate um, what, what Justin said as well. Um, it's a, the thing with the campaign is it, it's overgeneralising children's experiences and there's no room for voices of neurodivergent children in that. Mm. Um, and actually, there's no understanding of the implications of forcing a child into an environment where they have to mask every day. Um, and like it's been said before, like Amy said before, the, the Coke bottle effect, how that can impact them after school. But also for me, the impact of actually trying to force your child in every morning, like that continuing to put your child and yourself um, in that situation, in constantly in that, uh, with that stressor sort of overarching your experience is really quite detrimental to not only your mental health, but your physical health and your child's physical health. Um, and my child, um, Isla, has been shown to become quite poorly when constantly having to mask and be in an environment that's not meeting her needs. What does that look like, Sarah? What does quite poorly look like? So she she can be um, she can vomit if she's if she's highly anxious. Um, it affects her her stomach. Um, mm. She gets quite in, intense headaches. Um, she can't eat. Um, she can't sleep very well um, and she can often look um, and you can observe in her that she's quite pale and lethargic and you know dark circles under the eyes um, and that is just through consistent force mm. or, or you know pressure of trying to meet these standards of attendance yeah um, and we've actually got an, uh, an obviously I'm an educator, but uh, Lucy, you are a teacher, um, not currently working because you're looking after Jamie at home. Um, but just to pick up on Amy's point about the lack of training, can we sympathise with teachers? Um, I think we can sympathise with teachers, but um, I think there are things teachers could be doing as well um, without the training. Um, so obviously there's a much wider issue here of the fact that schools are unfit for purpose for neurodivergent children. 91.2% um, of children um, experiencing school distress are neurodivergent and 83.4% are autistic. So there's obviously something not working for our children there. Um, we need to send reform, which is the wider issue. However, I feel um, as a parent that teachers could have listened to me um, and that myself as a teacher, my job is to listen to parents and to work with parents. Um, I understand that teachers are completely up against it. I've been there um, for 12 years. It is tough out there. It is really tough when you have a class of 30 children, with co many of whom have complex needs, 
um, and social emotional needs as well as other types of SEND and you're on your own in a room with them with no TA you're under stress and pressure to teach them the curriculum when it's impossible to teach children who aren't regulated so you're kind of trying to regulate 30 different children and their specific needs whilst the impossible task of also teaching them um, so I completely get that however I do feel that due to the lack of funding and due to all the contributing factors the culture in teaching has changed to one of parent blaming as well as um, it coming from the government and the media I do feel that in staff rooms and um, schools themselves there is a culture of parent blaming and there's a fine line between trenches humour and being completely inappropriate um, which I've heard every day in staff rooms but I would just urge if any educators are listening to this I would just urge them to just listen to parents and to just take them seriously just give them the benefit of the doubt rather than gaslighting them um, that is what teachers could be doing because realistically the send reform isn't going to happen overnight and there's a long way to go and I think it can start with teachers mm. um, and other adults working in schools. That's some really really good advice there Lucy and upon reflection looking back or when this when this all began what would have been the most effective response from the school? What would have worked to prevent your child's anxiety or school avoidance from worsening? Um, maybe, Sarah, you can answer that one. Yes, of course. So for me, um, it would have been really important, actually, to acknowledge that what she was experiencing was burnout. Um, and I think that shifting the focus from attendance to actually recovery at home would have been beneficial for her um, because continuing to force her to attend school while she was in constant fight or flight was actually just layering her anxiety it wasn't reducing it or anything it, it was like exposure therapy mm. and exposure therapy is quite de detrimental for autistic individuals as quite often the it's, it's to do with the sensory stimuli um, and you know, the environment, and that cannot be changed in many mainstream schools. Um, so the trouble was that she wasn't actually learning anything. The only thing that she was learning was how to survive. Um, so absolutely, um, if it would have been recognised that she was actually in a mental health crisis, in burnout, autistic burnout, then maybe we could have approached that in a completely different way. Mm. And with, with the acknowledgement of it, what comes next? What does that look like? Is it is it the head teacher meeting with you and saying uh, she needs to be at home for a while? Is it bigger than that? Is it that the education system needs changing? You know, what what does it look like for educators listening out there or for head teachers out there? What does the right response look like? Yeah, so I think that many schools have these rules and regulations and policies that they need to adhere to so they they are going to want to continue to keep the attendance up um, and to show that they are supporting these children that are struggling however 
there is very little room um, for there to be at home recovery for a considerable amount of time, unless obviously it's a physical ailment, maybe they've broken a leg, you know, but mental health is viewed so much differently. Um, it's not seen as serious as a broken leg. Um, so trying to view it in a different way, viewing mental health as just as important as physical health would be a really huge step in um, approaching children that have mental health crisis and burnout. Yeah, and I, and I think this mental health journey that we're on, you know, we we are talking about it more, but it's still not being implemented other than the tick box that, that you know, schools are, are trying to tick. It's It needs to be more ingrained and in-depth. And I think, um, Lucy, what you were talking about earlier with um, Jamie wanting to break his leg so that he didn't have to go to school, I've, speaking to, I've spoken to many adults who have, have felt that way, but the understanding... The, the level of understanding there from a five-year-old that a physical uh, illness is going to be acknowledged but maybe this mental illness won't be is just astounding. You say that that, um, that is something that happens quite regularly. How do, did you share that with the school and if so, did what was their response? I shared everything with the school. Um... Jamie, he his behaviour completely regressed. Um, he lost the ability to function in many ways. His communication ended up being through very violent and challenging behaviour. Um, it was very distressing. Um, he was using language, um, suicidal ideation. He was using language about... Um, wanting to harm himself and harm us. Um, it was a very, very tricky time and I informed the school of all of it um, over the phone and then I followed up in email because I wanted to keep it in writing. Um, and their response was really disappointing, which was, well, he's fine in school. Um, that That's what I got. Um, he, he started kind of regressing in October so if you can imagine he started reception in September by October he was already we were already seeing these meltdowns and aggressions um, which it was his way of displaying the coke bottle effect mm. um, but the Senko didn't meet me all year um, the teacher I had to try really hard to pin her down and her response was that cliche he is fine in school and I was begging them to work with me. I asked for a CAMS referral, I asked if there was an ed psych who could see him um, but no he wasn't seen as a priority by the school and as a result he ended up in having a mental health crisis at the age of five. And Amy I just want to talk to you about the school's response to um, Jack being hospitalised. Yeah, so it was, well, I say funny, there's nothing funny about it at all. So up when, obviously, I pulled Jack out of school, um, you know, they they, under, they understood um, to some... It, 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 we had a very good relationship up until the point... Well, I thought we had a good relationship and understanding up until the point of me pulling him out. Um, and when he was hospitalised, I 
you know, gave a full account, um, said what had gone on, and he's sent officer um, as well. And the response I got was, you know, oh, well, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Keep us informed. Um, when I'd been contact, when I pulled him out of school, so I'd been contacting cams, saying to them, you know, I'm, I'd been ringing and emailing. I'm really worried about him. I'm really worried about his mental health. We need help. He's at breaking point. I would get no response, and then like ten days later, I would get a leaflet emailed to me. Um, and then when he was hospitalised, and the hospital contacted them, it was like headless chickens. Like, oh God. We've been ignoring this mum and now this child's been hospitalised. Let's move heaven and earth. And that's, that's a real thing. To, you know, a child shouldn't have to break for a mother to be listened to or parent to be listened to. Um, you know, it's very much I had been telling all of them this for God knows how long. And then when I said to school, he's not coming back to school. I said, that's it now you need to and the local authority provide they have a legal obligation if a child cannot attend school due to health reasons and be that emotional mental or physical under section 19 of the education act 96 the, the local authority have a legal obligation to fund and provide alternative provision that is suitable to the child's needs and they were trying the school were trying to block me getting that because Jack's EHCP funds for him to have a full-time one-to-one which gives the school another member of staff. Without Jack and Jack's EHCP they lose that member of staff. Their whole uh, viewpoint was to try and retain this staff member and so when they had to do a cost of provision map to give to the local authority on alternative provision it was being declined because they were like well we're, but we're paying for a one-to-one. -one. And I was like, well, hold up. You're paying for a one-to-one -one that I've quite frankly said, he's not going there. Now, I'm sorry that means somebody's going to lose their job, but that job was taken on knowing that you only work there if the child is there. I said, so you're basically trying to, the school were trying to block him get in getting any alternative provision um, because they wanted to retain a member of staff. So they were more concerned about their staff role than a child's well-being which I then very clearly pointed out to the local authority as well, that regardless of their argument with school and this one-to-one, -one, funding is not a determining factor when it comes to alternative provision. The only decision made is based on the welfare of the child. So I said, you can go and have your argument with the school about this one-to-one -one and the funding, but in that interim, you still need to provide this alternative provision. Um, which we did end up getting alternative provision for him. But at that point of Jack being hospitalised, rather than the school trying to sort of wrap us, um, you know, in, in care and look after us and support us, it was like, no, we're not getting involved in this. Um, and all they wanted to do was tick boxes. They just wanted to tick boxes. Yeah, and there is there is so much of that, isn't there, with, with schools? that there's, And this is not me siding with them, just knowing that there are so many hoops they have to jump through, boxes they have to tick. But it's about, you know, recognising that you're looking after humans here. This isn't numbers. They never once apologised. They never once said, we're sorry, this has happened. Yeah. Um, they even denied. They try, 
I was on a Teams call with the school and the local authority and I said to them, you know, I was speaking to one of the, the, the senior leaders at the local authority and I said to her, you know, when it gets to a point where your child is being manhandled into school, and that was the that morning was the morning where I went, no, no, we're not doing this, I'm taking him home, we're done. You know, two members of staff were basically trying to rugby tackle him through doors to get him into the school grounds, why he was absolutely sobbing and breaking his heart for me. And as a, as a parent, you are never going to stand back and just let somebody do that to your child. And I was just like, absolutely not. Nope, we're going. We're done. In the car, we're going home. When this was brought up, um, the senior officer looked at the head and was like, is this true? Did, was this, this child manhandled? And she was like, oh, uh, well, um, uh, well, I wasn't present. I wasn't present. I was like, well, you were. But actually, it doesn't matter if you weren't present. I was present. This is not what my child's saying. And even if he was, we still need to take, you know, his word as gospel. But the fact is, I was there. I witnessed it. This is why I pulled him out. So we're not going to sit on this call and you tell me I'm a liar. Um, and again, it's because they're trying to protect, they'd rather protect the reputation. And it's just, and my kind of viewpoint was, if this is what's going on in front of me, what's going on when I'm not here? And that yeah. explains a lot of the post-traumatic stress that's coming out in him now. Yeah, and we see see that so often, don't we? The, I guess the the physical element, and by physical, I don't I don't mean abusive, but I mean this restraining or having to restrain to get children into school. Well, this is it. You know, a stressed, anxious child doesn't learn. So, you know, going back to the campaign of the government, and it's like actually, don't focus on attendance. I mean, this this will make you laugh. So, Jack's attendance last year on his annual report. I can't remember the, the exact figure, it was over 90%. I think it was like 92%, 93 something like that, which is, I think is pretty exceptional for a child with the complex needs that he has. And his teacher had the audacity to write in the report that the areas where he was, he was below average, um, although he's a very smart child, there were areas that he struggles with, um, was because his attendance should be better. And I was like, oh, wow. So that's, that's your view on it, rather than saying, actually, kudos to Jack. He's managed to, with all of his complex needs and all of his difficulties and anxieties, he's still managed to come here this amount of days, but to, only to the detriment of him. And I just thought, the fact that you've actually written in a report that a child that attendance isn't bad at all, um, that he would have done better. And I just thought, actually, no, he'd have done better if you were supporting his needs. That's what that's what it would have been. And it's just, you know, it's not about ticking a box of, oh, yeah, we've got. A, and the other thing I can't bear is and I felt really sorry for him is that they have this reward system in schools. I don't know if all schools do it, but this particular school they did was that if the class get 100 percent attendance, that they get a treat. And obviously his class kept not getting 100% because Jack needed mental health days and days where he couldn't cope with going in. So that, you know, he got a lot of stick from peers because of that. Mm. Oh, because of you, we, we're now not getting a treat. Yeah. And you just think that's not acceptable. That's really, really, you should not be rewarding children for that. And then if they can't, they're then being vilified by their peers and the teacher highlighting why the class aren't getting the treat mm. is just, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, reward systems in themselves are are not inclusive and are actually setting up most children to fail somewhat. Um, And I think any school that is using any reward system for behaviour or otherwise needs to reflect on why they're using it and what they're getting out of it. Um, I want to talk about that last year's schools, schools minister, Nick Gibbs, said that we know that the best place for children to learn is in the classroom. Um, Sarah, we'll start with you. Do you agree with that? Um, absolutely not. Um, I think that we can all recognise that actually many neurodiverse children actually find the classroom environment like far too overwhelming due to like the external stimuli, the you know busyness of that, you know having limited um, one-to-one support with you know 29 other children in the class um, and um, where was my note um, and I think actually the oversimplification of his um, statement doesn't actually capture the experiences of these children at all um, many children have actually been found to flourish in the pandemic during home learning um, and they, some children have actually gone on to, and some families have chosen to continue to homeschool purely because their children did a lot better at mm. home. So it, it's not a one size fits all approach. So that's my sort of views on that one. Yeah, and interesting from an educa- educator point of view, um, I wrote an article during the lockdown when children were just starting to go back in that a lot of parents, for children that homeschool wasn't working for them, it parents were, well, p- at least parents thought it was homeschool that wasn't working for them. When at, in actual fact, what they were seeing, I was seeing quite regularly, regularly in school because it's the curriculum content and the way that it's taught isn't inclusive. So I quite often saw children breaking down and getting frustrated. But this was new for parents to see that. They, you know, they, they send them into school and they don't know what that looks like. Whereas learning at home for a lot of parents it was a time that they actually saw what school looked like for their child and and not everyone liked what they saw. So that's interesting as well to get kind of both takes on that. Um, So he also did say that the pandemic has still had a real impact on pupil absence. And I just want your opinion. Maybe, Lucy, you could answer this one. How did the pandemic shape your experiences? And are the government using the pandemic to excuse the rise in absences? Is it linked, do you think, or are they just trying to kind of say that it's it's the fault of the pandemic and not looking any deeper? Well, I think the pandemic is an issue. Um, it's a possible contributor to some of um, the attendance crises that's going on, but it is not the issue. It is not the issue here. And the focus on COVID and the pandemic and the fact that children have been at home is a complete deflection and it completely undermines the depth of what is happening in schools now. Um, So I just think it's the government trying to distract. Um, I am sure that COVID has affected the way that many families and many children view school. Namely, many children feel safer at home than at school. And having had time at home, then going into school may have exacerbated the way they feel unsafe. Um, However, I do find it really undermining and quite insulting the way the government is so hell-bent on blaming COVID for all of this. Because a child like Jamie was never keen on doing 
kind of formal activities. So even from the moment he could talk, he would say he didn't want to go to play group and he didn't want to go on play dates because he has social communication differences and all the places I took him to were set up for neurodivergent, uh, sorry, not neurodivergent, for neurotypical children. So I would take him to a group where he would be expected at the age of one or two to sit down for 10 minutes and join in with songs or I would take him to a cafe on a play date where he would be expected to sit still to eat um, and to and to socialise with children in a neurotypical way. And he has always said, I don't want to go. And actually, when lockdown hit, he literally cheered because he didn't have to go out anymore. Um, so for so our experience goes deeper than the pandemic and i think it is really complex and it's really complicated and it and and the pandemic has affected a lot of families but that is not the issue the issue is that we need to send reform because mainstream schools are failing neurodivergent children yeah and, and last Monday, the government announced 18 more attendance hubs, bringing the total to 32 and £15 million for attendance mentor pilots. Tell me your thoughts on uh, attendance hubs. Can they work? Um, just also as well, touching on what the other two were saying with COVID, um, I just think that the government love a scapegoat. They absolutely do. And I think these problems were around way before COVID. You know, Jack's journey alone, just before COVID hit, literally three days before the very first lockdown I was at his infant school having a, a meeting with the head teacher discussing a reduced timetable because he wasn't coping so again like Lucy's son when Covid hit oh my god Jack lived his best life like he was so happy because we didn't do homeschooling um, we very quickly learned that that was not going to work for Jack because home is home school is school he doesn't like blurring the two so Actually, what we did was focus on life skills during lockdown. And, you know, he learned to ride a bike. He learned self-care. Um, he learned to cook with his dad. Um, and he flourished during that time. Um, and I think, like you touched on as well, a lot of parents recognised that and continued that journey after rather than sending their children back. Now, some people might be sitting there saying, well, why did you send Jack back? I don't have the luxury to home, you know, have him home educated. One, because it wouldn't work in the sense that Jack likes the, the two differences, but also I have to work. I can't not work, so I, I can't do it. But in terms of the attendance hubs, why can't we have mental health hubs instead? Why can't this funding actually be put into what the real issue is? It's not attendance, it's the children's mental wellbeing, and that's where they should be putting the money into. It's a sticking plaster again. It absolutely is. Mm. And it's, oh, look what we're doing. And it's like, it's, you know, and again, about um, the children learning best in a classroom could not be further from the truth. Because the fact of the matter is, um, anybody who's got any experience or educated with neurodiversity, they will know that the classroom is the worst place for them. Um, you know, and that's why we, you know, we're now, we have Jack in a specialist school because, you know, a mainstream environment, the the buzz of corridors, classrooms, busy playgrounds, lunch halls, assemblies, 
the environment it just does not accommodate the complex needs um, and then I think you take that into a secondary school where they've got to change classroom every hour they've got a different teacher every hour they don't those teachers won't ever build a rapport with that neurodivergent child to really understand them to be able to meet that need it's a lot of transition so isn't it a lot of transition that a lot of autistic people will not cope with and it's not recognised um, at all. And I think that's why you see uh, a higher number as well within the secondary schools of these children having really severe mental health issues. And a lot of it comes down to the environment that they're in. And I, I quite often say that a lot of the time autistic people are more disabled by their environment than their condition because actually in the right environment that they thrive. And, and a Labour government are saying that they would legislate for a compulsory national register of homeschooled children as part of a package of measures designed to tackle the problem of persistent uh, absence in schools in England. Sarah, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so when considering attendance, so my thoughts are, I believe it's, there is a an acceptability of, of having a register so we can locate where children are but purely for safeguarding reasons um, because um, there are a lot of children currently miss missing that I've, I've read that there's, there's missing children we don't know whether they're supposed to be in school or they're being homeschooled so purely for safeguarding reasons I think that having a register for that is a good idea However, if this register comes with other obligations for homeschooling families, for example, to maybe meet specific curriculum um, that have to follow specific curriculums from schools, then I don't think that's um, a really good idea. Um, and I just can't see how it's going to improve attendance. The only thing it will do is identify who's not in attendance. Yeah, again, not really... Um, acknowledging the where the support is needed to 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 as they put tackle the problem they're again putting that plaster over um what could the opposition the Labour Party offer that would make you think yep they're onto something here they understand this they have the tools and approaches to make real improvements Lucy let's go to you for that one um yeah I just wanted to say that um Labour saying that they'll tackle the problem with um this list like is this still about pushing children into school when schools aren't fit for them is it still about attendance so I feel like the politicians on both sides are really looking at it um, from the lens of how can we get children into school and you'll read articles and you'll you'll hear from professionals and it's all about how can we get them into school you know how can you get your child into school? Let's help these children into school. Nobody's actually looking at the schools, um, which is the root of the problem. I agree with what you said, Sophie, with it being a sticking plaster, because the root of the problem is not that the children aren't going to school. The, the root of the problem is why are they not going to school? But um, It seems to me that no one is asking that question. And I, 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 is it... Are they just being politicians and they're ignoring that? I, I mean, is it too huge a problem? I think the thing is, that, you know, as someone who wants major reform in the education system, I see day in, day out, 
it's failing children, all children. The system is so dated and the curriculum is so overpacked. It's not relevant to our children's lives. And Amy, I really loved what you were talking about, about life skills. You know, this is where education should be going. But I almost feel like it's too scary. It's too scary for many parents. It's too scary for many educators. It's too scary for the government to think of what the upheaval of that might look like. Um, and I, I, I just, I feel like that that's what's going to take the time here is for people to say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do this. We've all got to stick together. We've all got to work together to make this change because it is so huge. What I would like to see as a neurodivergent adult and a parent of neurodivergent children and a teacher in mainstream schools, what I would love to see from the opposition or from whoever is in government are neurodivergent, disabled, autistic, ADHD voices included in policy and in training for teachers and professionals because people talk about make sure that teachers are trained make sure the head teachers are trained make sure that LA professionals are trained what is the point of training them on autism if they haven't heard from an autistic person we don't want more neurotypical rhetoric going on in our schools when schools are basically based on a behaviorist system that shames anyone who doesn't fit into the neurotypical profile you know you talked about reward charts and everything but the general um, ethos of schools is you sit still you listen it's based on hierarchy hierarchy is something that PDA children can't cope with 70% of PDA children are not in full-time education because they can't cope with imposed timetables which are schools they can't cope with having to eat at a certain time having to do certain things at a certain time and ADHD children aren't allowed to move around they have to sit still they're not allowed to stim they're not allowed to blurt out answers they're not allowed to hyperfocus. so it is an abyss as well as being an archaic system which you're you know i completely agree about it's also a completely ableist system so what i'd really love to see from central government is putting some neurodivergent and disabled people in positions of power with policy and um hopefully it would trickle down um into the send reform yeah um, I want to talk about the the boxes that schools have to tick. We, we, Amy, we spoke a bit about this earlier, this idea that, you know, they've got budgets, they've got boxes to tick, hoops to get through. And, and um, in an article that I read, it said that there are further plans to empower the school's inspector at Ofsted to review absence as part of an annual safeguarding spot check. And I want to pick up on the empowering of Ofsted there in that article. Is the empowering of Ofsted in terms of attendance, is it going to force schools into more punitive and dated approaches to increasing attendance figures? Yeah, so it all sounds great on the surface, doesn't it? You know, with, you know, regulating more with mental health support for children in schools. Um, but there is, like Lucy has just addressed, there is a real need for insights from real experiences from neurodiverse individuals um, and how they're impacted um, by 
school and the environment. Um, and I think relying solely on Ofsted, which like gathers data through like limited observational visits, is not sort of sufficient enough to comprehensively address the issue of attendance. Mm. Um, and I think that it could definitely lead to sort of very outdated punishment, um, you know, ways of, of dealing with the issue mm. um, rather than actually addressing the core issue that has been already addressed in, by Lucy recently. Yeah, I mean, and Ofsted such a, a big problem at the moment and, and it doesn't seem like any big changes going on there. You know, six, I think it was a six-hour wellbeing course that, the, that they've gone on seems to have fixed the problem apparently. But, uh, you know, head teachers are afraid, educators are afraid of Ofsted. They're afraid of what they might do to their numbers, their funding and ultimately will respond. And you know, we can only hope that that it it doesn't make things get any worse but I mean I can't see how that isn't going to happen if they are going to empower Ofsted more with attendance um I just want to move on I could talk to you all for hours um but I just want to ask all of you um if you could verbalize how your child is feeling or what you know imagine your child what they might say to the school or their teacher about their experiences what would that be Amy let's start with you so actually Jack when we were at the, the height of Jack having his, his breakdown in September, um, he actually turned around and said he was in the head's office with me and he actually sobbed and turned around and said, I don't think I'll survive another year if I have to stay here. That, you know, he was 10 at the time. That was my 10-year-old basically saying he, he said he felt the stress of school was going to kill him. And he wasn't talking suicide because Jack isn't, that kind of way inclined. He's very scared of those sort of things, but he genuinely felt the stress and he was going to die from the stress in his body. And he was terrified of that. He was absolutely terrified. And I just think that is the reality that we are looking at with a lot of children. And I just think, you know, the others have said there absolutely has to be a SEND reform. Um, and I don't want to hear them saying about funding because when you've got an education secretary spending 34 million pounds on an office refurb, You've got £60 million being wasted on uh, tribunals because 98% go in parent favour. You've got a minimum of £15 million being spent on an attendance campaign. Well, you do the numbers and you put that all together and you think how better spent that could have been. Um, you know, we need to be looking at an education system that isn't just about academics. You need to look at vocational. Um, I've got a friend who's got a daughter. She's neurotypical. But she's not an academic. Um, she's just started secondary school and her whole primary life, she very much struggled with her English and maths. So has spent the first six years of school life believing that she won't achieve anything. But at the age of eight, nine years old, if you gave her a flat pack from Ikea, she could build the whole thing because she's she's got that kind of mind. And I think, you know, people go to school, but they're going to come out and they're going to be a carpenter. And I think... Those things need to start from a very early age because ultimately she's just spent six years thinking that she's not good enough. And I'm like, actually, you're incredible. Like, I couldn't build a flat pack at the age of eight years old. I couldn't follow the instructions and do it. And I just think if those children had those opportunities from early years, that in itself would help mental health because they would believe in themselves and have far much more self-awareness and think that actually it's not all about what I learn in maths and English and you know it's the, and the pressure they put on kids for SATs who who as an adult has sat in an interview 
and that person has turned around and said to you, how did you do in your year six sats? Because you're only going to get this job depending on those results. They don't, do they? It, so it's completely ridiculous. Um, and so I just think there needs to be a government that comes in that recognises this and says, we're going to do this. Yeah, who's going to be brave enough? That's that's what it's exactly all about. That. Who's going to take yeah. on this massive job because it needs but, to be and done? And that's what it is. Sometimes I almost think they just can't be bothered because they just think, because it is a big job. But when it's done, it's done. And for for years ahead of us, we would reap the rewards of it, wouldn't we? Rather than trying, like you say, it's that sticking plaster. And prevention's better than cure, isn't it? Let's let, let's change it now so the next generations don't fail. Absolutely. Um, Sarah, what what? How would you verbalise? How how would your child verbalise what they're feeling? What might they say to their teacher or school? So for Isla, um, and obviously the, the trauma that she has now now got from school, um, she has actually said that she can't go to school anymore because it makes her feel unwell. Um, it makes her consistently feel um, sick to the stomach, and this is because of the anxiety. You know it it can really impact her physically in that respect. Um, and that she's, she, she has said something funny in the past. She said when she was seven, actually, I don't need school because I've already got my life figured out. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that's, you know, listening to that from a seven-year-old is quite, quite funny, but actually we do need to listen to children. They know they have their own minds and allowing them the autonomy to decide what is best for them with guidance is in the best interest of our neurodiverse children and neurotypical children. I think that making children consistently conform is just like trying to create factory workers. And this is why the education system is no longer fit for purpose. Um, There needs to be a complete sense of form as we have already addressed. And I wholeheartedly support that. I have a quote from Jamie, age five, who said, I hate my life because I have to go to school. Why do I have to go there? Why is it a drop-off? Can't you come in with me, mummy? I want to die if I have to keep going to school. That was age five. Um, He hasn't attended for six months. Um, He had an assessment recently and he the clinician tried to ask him about school and he completely shut down but he did say I'm never setting foot in a school again so that is how he verbalizes his thoughts on school Um, but if I could verbalize them for him I would just say please please take me seriously Um, and unfortunately well not unfortunately because it's part of his um, brain type and the what makes him tick but he cannot talk about feelings and he cannot verbalize to teachers what is difficult for him at a time so as his parent I am his advocate so I would just again urge the people on the front line who deal with us parents to please listen to us please make an effort to work together with us because we we are not against you we want the same thing we all want um the children to be happy and do well and that's going to be in everybody's interest however we are advocates and if something isn't working we are going to speak up but we often find ourselves blamed or 
gaslighted um, or simply not taken seriously. So that's my message is that please listen to us, please work with us, take us seriously. Mm. I think if small accommodations had been made early on, it would have made a huge difference to Jamie and his experience. For example, the carpet, age three at nursery, he found it hard to stay on the carpet for 15, 20 minutes. He has severe ADHD. He would touch other children's faces. He would start picking at the walls and he got in a lot of trouble for this. Um, and I spoke to the teacher and I asked, could he be washing pots? Again, coming back to those life skills, could he be doing something useful? Because he's evidently not learning sitting on the carpet. But I was told, no, it's an expectation. At this, at this stage, it's an expectation. Um, similarly, my other child is three, has just started nursery, um, who is also autistic. And they have a fruit bowl at nursery, but my child doesn't eat fruit and he relies heavily on food to regulate um, orally and so I said to the teacher please could we bring in some breadsticks for you to keep in the cupboard for him to eat he doesn't eat fruit due to a restricted diet and I was told no um, let him when he sees other children eating fruit he might go for the fruit let's try it let's go for the fruit it's very one size fits all so it would be it would send really positive messages to children if accommodations were being made, they would feel understood. But at the moment, they feel misunderstood and they feel like misfits because they don't fit into the one-size-fits-all. And that would also help parents to feel part of something rather than excluded from a system that only works for a certain type of child. Mm. And I think it's, the, it's this sense of flexibility and having spoken to educators about this, I think the fear comes from allowing 30 children to have 30 different experiences and I know that sounds really strange but the idea of control can can um, hinder seeing it, it can stop you from seeing clearly so if I'm doing a carpet time I might have this urge as an adult to have control over the room for fear of what I might have to deal with and it's so important. I urge all educators to question what you are asking of children to see each child as an individual. Their experiences will be different. You cannot have the same expectations for everybody, just as having 30 to 60 adults in a conference room, some will get up and walk out they'll need some fresh air, some will want to sit, some will drink some water. You know, these are humans that we are dealing with. And I think it's so important that every time you ask a class of children to do something and five of them choose not to do it, think about your response. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Um, I just want to touch upon something that Amy spoke about earlier before I ask the final question. Um, and it was to do with legal rights um, and I know that none of you would have planned to have had to uh, equip yourself with this kind of knowledge. Amy can you talk to us about the, the, the shock and the, and the education that you've had to give yourself on, on the legal side of things? Yeah absolutely um, you know when I first pulled Jack out of school and I was being hit with barrier after barrier from the local authority and school saying no no we can't do this no no we can't have that and I just thought 
this doesn't sound right to me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm autistic and um, my children and autism is my special interest and you know, advocating for the neurodivergent community. Um, so I ploughed myself into research. Um, and I enrolled myself on a SEN law course and started educating myself and what I uncovered was there are so many legislations in place to protect our children and their educational rights and the minute I knew all of these legislations and my local authority were breaching around five of them and I started quoting these and I got everybody involved. I had the children's services director involved. I had to send cabinet member. I had the local authority, like all the senior teams there. I had my local MP. Um, I informed Ofsted and I said, you know, I raised formal complaints. I had to make a lot of noise, um, but with facts. I was like, these are facts. These are laws that you must be adhering to and you are not, you are breaching these. And the minute I changed that narrative, rather than just asking, I was telling and backing it up with these laws, everything changed. We'd gone from the beginning of October being told, nope, your child can't attend a specialist school, their needs can be met in a mainstream school, said child that had just been hospitalised, to eight weeks later, um, they conceded before we even hit the tribunal response, where basically when you, when you log a, uh, an appeal, it goes to tribunal and then the local authority, I think, have around six, six weeks to respond to whether they are, you know, are going to contest. We didn't even get to that stage because they very quickly learned that I was a woman, not a mother, that was not going away um, and that I knew my child's rights. Um, and I even said to them, if, this, if you make this go all the way to tribunal, and my because uh, our tribunal date had been given to us for September next year and my child misses a year out of his educational life because all this is is a delay tactic because I know I will win that appeal I'm then going to be looking at a litigation case against you and they were like oh well so within six weeks from the first response they then said that they would put it back to panel and then within eight weeks, basically from, from the very first refusal to eight weeks later, they then conceded, agreed specialist school and also named uh, parental choice. So make and a noise that wouldn't have and happened. educate yourself. Uh, and yeah. The thing and is, that would I not guess... have happened. No, if I hadn't have done the research that I'd done and I just, the gaslighting they give to parents, the stuff they were telling me, I was like, this is not true. This, this is not true. And I would go back with another law that would counteract what they were saying. They were looking at so many roadblocks because it all comes down to the fact that they didn't want it coming out of their pot. Um, and it was never about their way, their view was never about the welfare of Jack. And I said that to them. I said, if this was all about the welfare and rights of the child, we would never even be having these conversations. It just would have been, this is what he needs, let's do it. But I had to educate myself massively to get that. Yeah. And and it, there's many books out there, but the, the Square Pegs book has a section on on the legal rights as well. Um, and I'm sure Square Pegs um, would also be able to help direct Ipsa, anybody. Ipsa are brilliant. It, you know, Ipsa they're they're great. There's you know, there is out there. You've just but the thing is, it's not readily available for parents. But when you start when you start unturfing it, you just think, oh wow, and it makes you realise how corrupt the system is. Yeah.
So uh, looking looking ahead now to your futures, um, what does the future hold for, for your child and for, for your family? Um, Lucy, let's start with you. Well, we just want our child to recover and to be well again. That's That's what we want and that's what we're aiming for. Are you seeing recovery at the moment? We are. We are seeing recovery. The nightmares have stopped. He he used to wake up with nightmares multiple times a night about um about school. Um he he was he was in complete burnout, so he he wasn't playing, he wasn't laughing, he wasn't verbally communicating. He would only eat a certain type of food. He'd only eat Cheerios with jam or peanut butter on toast he stopped eating all other foods um we weren't able to have visitors if a visitor came round, he would um have an hour-long meltdown uh he doesn't want to leave he didn't want to leave and he still doesn't want to leave um however the nightmares panic attacks have reduced um the meltdowns are reducing and he has been out a few times, but he still really wants to be at home. Um, but we are seeing gradual recovery because he laughs now. He laughs and he stopped laughing for months and he stopped playing for months. He used to devour books. He used to ask for 10, 20 books to be read to him every night. He, he won't read now. He, he just slumps in front of the TV in the fetal position. Um, but we are seeing him start to come out of that from being out of school. Um, so we're seeing the recovery, so that's what we want. Um, in terms of our journey with kind of schooling, we are awaiting the panel's decision. I've submitted the needs assessment request um, because the school didn't want to do it. They still don't want to do it, so I've done it myself. We are hoping to get an EOTAS package, which stands for Education Otherwise Than at School, which is for children who cannot access school and would involve him learning from home in different ways. However, it's very rare to be granted this. And it's again, it's a big battle, it's a big fight. We're going to do it. I'm gonna continue fighting, I'm gonna continue advocating, but at the end of the day, all I want is for him to be well. Um, again, I'm not one that could afford to home educate, electively home educate. Financially, I've always needed to work. Um, Will that work be education? Would you go back into education? Um, I would like to, but to be honest, I was finding it really, really hard to be a mainstream teacher whilst going through this because I was seeing it from both sides of the coin. I was going into work and trying my best to meet children's needs, but being unable to meet their needs because I was on my own in a small room with 30 children, um, some of whom had complex needs. And at one point, um, a child did run out of the classroom, absconded, and I didn't know where he was. I sent a child to get a TA because I didn't have a TA. There wasn't a TA in the entire building. So I sent a child up to the head teacher's office. There was no one in the head teacher's office. Yet I couldn't leave the 29 other children to go and look for this child. This is what crisis schools are in. So I found it hard to be going to work and dealing with that 
and dealing with autistic children who weren't fitting into this ableist environment and the environment was disabling them and was in effect breaking them so I found that really hard to then come home to my own child who had been disabled and broken by that environment so I would like to maybe look at alternative ways of being an educator that fit more with my advocacy and my special interest in autism and neurodivergence. Mm. And what about you Sarah, what does the future hold for you and your family? Yeah so I have quite a similar experience as Lucy, um, I have obviously a PDA child um, and I will also be advocating and pushing for an education relevant school package for her um, but again the fight is just beginning. Um, I actually have an emergency review of her EHDP next week where I'm going to be addressing some of some of the issues that I have with her current setting um, and the you know the, the distance being a huge barrier to attendance um, and also recognizing the trauma that she has experienced from being in a mainstream school that that, that didn't meet her needs although they tried they, they, they couldn't um, as for what I want for the future for my for my children, not just my daughter, I just want them to be happy. You know, she, my daughter Isla's now had seven months off where I have de schooled. I've allowed, I've, I've reduced demands, um, and I have let her lead how she wants to learn. And I've seen huge improvements. Like my my daughter is now singing in the shower again, and that is so huge for us. She's able to shower again, you know? Um, she's starting to be able to perform self-care care tasks that she just couldn't physically do when she was just constantly in fight or flight. She didn't have the energy, she was exhausted. And I just, I need to focus on mental health with her. I need to get her to a place where she's building up her confidence and her self-esteem. But also once she is happier, my family will be happier. My son will get that 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 attention that he also needs as well. Um, if my if my daughter's more regulated, um, but also for myself, my well being. Um, I've actually recently my future changed. I, I was supposed to be completing and finishing a degree this year. Um, I've just had to um, suspend my final placement of my degree, um, which was really hard for me to accept because. I have made so many sacrifices for my children that, you know, being out of education and this was one part of my identity that I was trying so hard to hold on to. Um, but unfortunately being a single parent and not having a child in education and a very limited network of support, I I was forced to, to, to put you know, to make this decision and um, I would love love to be able to pursue that again in a year maybe two, um, as it's something that's really, really important for me. And it will be great for my children in the future as well. Yeah, and, and such a good point there about it's not just the child that this affects, it's a whole family um, and therefore the community and therefore our, so our society on a wider in a wider context. Um, 
Thank you for sharing that. And finally, Amy, I know that you've had a big day today. Would you like to tell us about today and then the future, what the future might hold for you and your family? Yeah, absolutely. So Jack had his first um, day at his specialist school today. So we're doing a very gradual approach in building up his time there. So he'd done um, two hours this morning. Um, There was a lot of anxiety on the way for him, which, you know, that's understandable. He's been out of education for six months. It's a new environment. Obviously, we'd been there and done, you know, sort of meet and greets. And his class teacher actually came to our house on Monday to meet him. So he felt like he had a bit of rapport before going to school today. But this was the first time where he was going to be meeting fellow peers. And that's quite anxiety-inducing for him. And I think that's because adults know the boundaries. Peers don't always. So he always feels a little bit vulnerable. But um, there was a few tears at drop-off, but they were incredible at supporting him. Um, I reassured him that I'd be back in two hours with a favourite cake. Um, And when I came back, he was beaming, absolutely beaming. Can't wait to go back. And that is the first time in six years I've ever heard my child say that they can't wait to go back to an education setting, Um, which is just, you know, incredible because as a parent, you are only happy as your unhappiest child. So, you know, when your child's in pain and hurting, so are you. You feel what your child feels. Um, So the fact that, you know, he's going to switch from surviving to thriving means as a family, we'll all do that too because we all carried that pain that he was going through. Um, You know, so to see him thrive makes me feel like I can you know um so i'm looking forward to 24 i'm looking forward to it i feel you know there's um and that's why i want to say to any parents that you know i have so many parents that reach out to me that are going through this whole world of pain and i have been there and i feel it so rawly for them but i just want to say don't ever stop know your child's rights and fight for them because it does feel like it's going to break you. And at times I honestly felt I was going to break. Like I got so stressed at one point, all my eyes were twitching. And I said to my husband, I'm going to have a stroke. Literally think I'm going to have a stroke. I'm that stressed. Um, but I, you don't stop fighting for your child because if I don't fight for him, who else will? And that's the point, you know, and you sh- it shouldn't be. You shouldn't have to fight like that. No. But what I will say to parents is, is you are not alone find your community find your tribe and educate yourself and you will get there and it will be worth it Mm. thank you and to anyone who's listening who's got a story that they want to share I'm going to be opening a board where you can just share your experiences Um, I will put the link on the episode summary feel free to to put your stories up um, anonymously or with your name however you want to do it I think it's really important that we're all speaking out in whatever way and just sharing it and like you say knowing that there is a community there of people behind you you're not alone Um, and just on behalf of educators out there please listen to these stories these these children are human they are all individual none of us got into education for children to feel this way and for families to have to experience this and and remember that every single time that you are in that classroom um, and I know that we're working against the tide a system that is not designed to be inclusive but do what you can um, to make change 
Um, I'm going to put all of the details and links up, up on the episode summary. But I just want to say a massive thank you again to all of you um, for sharing and being vulnerable with me today. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Wow, some unbelievable accounts there from families that are going through something they should never have to go through. If you would like to share your story, then please do add it to the link, share my story in the episode summary. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can go to mindfulnessforlearning.com. Thanks again to my three guests for sharing. Thanks to Ben Corbett for editing this episode so quickly so that we could get the stories out there. And thank you to you, our listeners. We will see you next time.